Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Today we're beginning a new class called Son of David, which explores the rich biblical parallels between Solomon and Jesus. Our teacher is Victor Glucken, pastor of Living Faith Christian Church in Warwick, Rhode Island. Over more than two decades of friendship, I've been repeatedly impressed by Glucken's ability to bring Scripture alive when he teaches. Truth be told, he's one of my favorite preachers of all time. You can find out more about him at his church's website, livingfaithri.org. Today, our focus is on the covenant God made with David to be a father to one of his descendants and to establish his throne forever. This seminal promise shaped Israelite history in good times and bad until ultimately Jesus came on the scene in the Gospels. If you'd like to follow along, there are notes for this class available in the show notes for this episode or by visiting restitutio.org and finding episode 429. So check that out if you're interested. So let's dive in. Episode 429, Son of David, Part 1, Davidic Covenant with Victor Glucken. We are going to... uh start out in 1st Chronicles chapter 17 you can make your way there now where we find ourselves in the story of the people of God is during the period of the kings and actually we're going to start out tonight with probably the greatest king the second king of Israel a man named David when God created the heavens and earth in the beginning he put man on this earth with a job to take care of this planet and be in charge of everything. And when man and and woman, Adam and Eve, when they sinned and they rebelled against God, they lost that authority over the earth, and the devil started taking control of things. But God, through his great love and grace, started to work right in that moment to get back what he originally intended in the beginning into reality in the end. And he worked through a man named Abraham, a great man named Abraham, a man of faith, And he made him a covenant and promised that Abraham and his descendants would receive the earth back again one day. And then the next great covenant of scripture God made through a man named David, where David and his descendants would would be in charge of the planet again. And so tonight we're going to start with that story about David. David had been on the run. He was a shepherd and then he was a fugitive, the king that was in power before him, a man named Saul was crazy. Let's just say it how he was. He was neurotic. He was crazy. He was paranoid. He was jealous. And ultimately, he's influenced by evil spirits, and he's out to kill David for most of David's uh, young adult life. And now David is finally settled as king over God's people, and we find ourselves in First Chronicles chapter 17, verse 1. And it came about... When David dwelt in his house, that David said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I am dwelling in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under curtains. And Nathan said to David, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. And it came about the same night that the word of God came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell David my servant, Thus says the Lord, 
you shall not build a house for me to dwell in. So David asks, I want to build a temple, a house for God. The, pres- the, the thing that represented God's presence, the Ark of the Covenant was living in a tent. And David said, I'm living in a nice house. The presence of God should live in a nice house too. And God says, well, hold on a second. Verse 5, I have not dwelt in a house since the day that I brought up Israel to this day. But I have gone from tent to tent and from one dwelling place to another. In all places where I have walked with all Israel, have I spoken a word with any of the judges of, of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built a house of cedar for me? God's like, I've never asked for this. It's good intention, but I'm all good. Now listen to this part right here. This is where God starts to speak to David. And he says, now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep to be leader over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make you a name like the name of the great ones who are in the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and not be moved again. And the wicked will not waste them anymore as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I tell you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are fulfilled that you must go to be with your fathers, I will set up one of your descendants after you who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne. How long? Forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And I will not take my loving kindness away from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. What we just read is called the Davidic covenant. Davidic covenant. A covenant is a formal and serious agreement or promise. It's a written agreement or promise, usually under seal between two or more parties, especially for the performance of some action. So God makes a promise to David that he is going to take care of him, that he's going to provide for him a lineage and a kingdom that will last forever. And and what we're going to talk about in this first part tonight is this Davidic covenant. And on your notes, I break down what this covenant was all about. We just read this. Here's what God says he will do. The first thing is to David, I will make your name great. Most people try to spend time making a name for themselves. God says, I'm going to make your name great. I will appoint a place for my people Israel, planting them so they will be safe and not moved again. Up until this time, Israel hasn't had a permanent home, and so God says, I'm going to plant them. In other words, he's going to set them in the ground so that they're not going to be moved around anymore. I'm going to subdue all your enemies. And then he says, I will build a house for you. Now, David wanted to build a physical house for the Lord. And when the Lord responds to David, he says he's going to build a house for him. He's not talking about a mansion or a castle. He's talking about a line, a lineage. And here's what he says about that house. God will establish the house and the kingdom for one of David's descendants forever. And he says to him about this descendant, I will be his father and he shall be my what? His son. I will not take my loving kindness away from him 
and I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. This is quite the covenant. This is quite the promise. He, it's much more than like, David, I'm going to take care of you, and you'll always get a good parking spot, and I'm going to make sure that you're happy and there's always good weather. This is an eternal promise. This is an everlasting covenant to build David's house. And so we can summarize this covenant and the main elements of it the following way. That the Davidic covenant, the promise of the Davidic covenant is that there would be a, a king that would come in the future who would be the son of David. And that's obvious. David is setting up this uh, house, this lineage. So clearly his son would be the next in line for the throne. All right, that's the first part of it. So this covenant would involve David's son, but also we, we learn that this son would not be just the son of David, but the son of God. So the Davidic covenant is about a son of David who will be the son of God as well, and he will be the king forever. Son of David, son of God, king forever. That's the Davidic covenant. If you don't walk away with anything tonight, you can take those three things. They're no charge. The Davidic covenant is about the son of David, who will be the son of God, and he'll be the king forever. Let's say that together. He'll be the son of David, son of God, king forever. Say it one more time. The son of David, son of God, king forever. That's what the Davidic covenant is all about, that there will be a son of David who will be the son of God and who will rule the kingdom forever. Now, as we'll learn over these three weeks, the promise of this covenant extends to the next literal king. We'll talk about Solomon was David's son, and he is going to be the king. But it extends beyond that because Solomon is not going to live forever. And if you're going to be the king forever, you've got to live forever. That's just the way that works. So beyond just the next in line to the throne, which any king wants to uh, have an interest in, there is an everlasting element to this because David's son is going to rule forever. In Psalm 89, this psalm was written by Ethan, and he says, I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations, I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said, loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens, you establish your faithfulness. This is God speaking. I have made a covenant with my chosen, and I have sworn to David, my servant, that I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. God's swearing that he's going to do this. That's, there's a lot of emphasis to that if God is swearing. If somebody in our culture wants to make a big deal about something, what do they say? They say, I swear to God, I saw it. But God, when he swears, that's like the best it can be. In Psalm 132, this was one of the songs that the people would sing as they approached Jerusalem. And it says, For the sake of David your servant, do not reject your anointed one. The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath that he will not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and statutes that I teach them, then their sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling. This is my resting place forever and ever. 
Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provision. Her poor I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation, and her saints will ever sing for joy. Here I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but the crown of, on his head will be magnificent. So it became part of the hope of the people of Israel that there would be this kingdom that would last forever and that the king that would rule forever would be the son of David. He would also be the son of God and he would rule forever. That was the covenant that God made with David. It's everlasting. It's everlasting. Now, there is a problem that started to develop in Israel. David's sons didn't do so hot. In fact, some of them did really, really bad. And so the, you're wondering, like, well, how's this going to work out? Right? How's this going to work out? I thought this was going to go on forever. Now, has anybody heard about a descendant of David ruling right now somewhere in Israel or Jerusalem? No, right? There's no, nobody from the house of David is ruling. They have a prime minister and a president in Israel, and that's just recent, since the 60s. So what we see is that this promise, because it was eternal and everlasting in nature, it actually goes beyond even the descendants of David that are ruling on the throne at the time. And there is an expectation for a king that will rule forever. And when Israel did bad, when Israel sinned, listen to what God said in 1 Kings 11. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. But to his son I will give one tribe so that my servant David may have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen my, for myself to put my name. In Second Chronicles 21, verse 7, it says, Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant which he had made with David, and since he had promised to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. So this is crazy. Even though the descendants of David sinned and rejected God himself, God said, you know what, I'm going to keep a little flickering flame of hope out there because I promised to David that one of his sons is going to rule forever. So the dynasty of David is going to end. If you read the Old Testament, when you get to the final pages, there's no king anymore. The last king, Zedekiah, is killed and sent away. He's not ruling on the throne. But what starts to develop in the Old Testament, what starts to develop in in, uh, in Judaism and in the Jewish religion, the people of Israel, was a hope for this flicker of hope to one day start to shine again. Because after all, if God made a promise and swore that it was going to happen, it's going to happen, amen? amen? And so what happens is the people start to lose their expectation, well, maybe the next administration will do it right. And they just start hoping that one day a king's going to come and he's going to set everything right. When the everlasting hope of a great king ruling was not found in the sons of Israel. The people of God began to shift their expectation from maybe the next administration will finally do it right this time. Not that anybody's ever said that recently in this country. <laughs> they shifted away from that to instead to a hope of a future righteous and faithful king who would rule forever on David's throne. 
And so the prophets begin to paint a picture of such a king. Let's go to Isaiah now, chapter 9. So the hope of the next in line on David's throne doing it right started to fade. And instead, this little flicker was that one day there'll be a king that'll do it right. And in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, Isaiah says that he has this vision that a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Right? We're talking about a, a hope of a king coming. And so a child's going to be born, and the, the government's going to rest on his shoulders. And his throne name, what they will call him, is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, and there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. You hear that? To this one who will be born, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of who? David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. So what starts to develop in the Old Testament is this hope for this one to come who will have the government resting on his shoulders and who will rule on David's throne and complete this promise that God made. Let's go to Isaiah 11. These are the verses that we usually read around Christmas time, aren't they? Right? And the Christmas cards with Isaiah 9, 6 on it. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. And the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. So there's this hope that when it seems like the tree, David's family tree is cut, it's a stump, a little shoot's going to spring up for it. Now, when you see a stump, that means that that tree's done, right? And let's pull out the roots and dig it up and get a backhoe in here and get rid of it. But in this case, it looks like David's family tree is done. But the prophet says, hold on a second, I see something happening here. A little shoot springing up. A new branch bearing fruit from the old root. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance nor make a decision based on hearsay. Or WikiLeaks. <laughs> but he will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. I, I make that comment because this is so relevant for the world in which we're living, isn't it? There's this hope from the Old Testament that one day a righteous king, a righteous ruler will sit on the throne and there'll be an everlasting peace and justice for all. This son of David, this son of God, this king forever. So from the prophets, this becomes known as the messianic hope. To be the Messiah, you are the one who would rule on David's throne forever. So let's talk for a minute about what is the Messiah? What is the Messiah? This is what the word Messiah means. The king of Israel was the anointed one of God. David and every other king was called the anointed one. Because when they were appointed to be king, 
they got anointed by oil, by the priests or the prophet. They literally, the way that you would know that that person became the king is they would take out some oil and pour this oil on that individual's head to anoint them, to set them apart, to consecrate them. And so the king became known as the anointed one because this wasn't something that you did all the time. So when this king, this person that was anointed, they called him the anointed one. And to anoint comes from the Hebrew word mashach. Let me hear you say that. Mashach. You got to get some more chutz in the end here. Mashach. That means to anoint. The anointed one in Hebrew is ha-mashiach. Let me hear you say that. Ha-mashiach. So to anoint is what you would do to the king. That's the Hebrew word, Mashach. The anointed one is Ha-Mashiach. Say it again. Ha-Mashiach. Beautiful. Beautiful. And this is where we get our English word, Messiah. So Messiah is the English derivative of the anointed one, Ha-Mashiach. Now, the New Testament, which is written in Greek, not Hebrew, the word for Messiah is the Greek word Christos, where we get our English word Christ. So let's put it all together here. The king of Israel, God's nation, was the anointed one, which you'd also call the Messiah, and the New Testament would call the Christ. So to be the Christ means you're the anointed one, the Mashiach, the Messiah. So every king of Israel was anointed, every single one, and thus a Messiah, but the concept of the Messiah brings with it the understanding of the king of Israel who will rule on David's throne, but it includes the forever element of the Davidic covenant. So the promised son of David who would rule forever is the Messiah. So that's why when we just read in Isaiah about this future king that would come, this is why this became known uh, by the Jewish nation as the messianic hope, the hope of the Messiah coming. What is the Messiah? The Messiah is the one that was anointed. And the Hebrew word for anointed, Tom, is Mashach. The Messiah in Hebrew is Ha-Mashiach. But the Greek form of this word, and this is where some confusion will come in, is where we get our word Christ. So Christ and Messiah mean the same thing. You know what they mean? They mean anointed one. And you know who is the anointed one? The king. The king the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, HaMashiach, all the same thing. All right? The, the people of God at this time, the Jewish nation, they have this longing for this little flicker of hope because the kings of the time were schmoes for this one righteous king that would come to fulfill the Davidic covenant. He was going to be the son of David, the son of God, and the king forever. He was going to be the Messiah, the anointed one. And so in the religion of Judaism, which finds its roots in the Old Testament, the Jewish understanding of this, this figure, Messiah, let's talk about that for a minute. This is from a, not, not a Christian source. This is a Jewish organization called Chabad, which is devoted to preserving the Jewish religion and Jewish culture. And this is what they say about the Messiah. Not Jesus, but the Messiah. The Messianic era will be ushered in by a Jewish leader generally referred to as the Mashiach, which is the word Messiah, Hebrew for anointed one. 
which would be a righteous scion or descendant of King David. This is what the Jewish people believed, that the Messiah would be a king who would be related to David. This is what they believe about him, that he will rebuild the holy temple in Jerusalem and gather the Jewish people from all the corners of the earth and return them to the promised land. This is what Jewish people believe about what the Messiah will do. Here's another source. Every day, the Jewish people pray three times, in the morning, in the afternoon, and in the evening. And the standard Jewish prayer includes 19 different things, right? So a lot of Christians pray the Lord's Prayer a, a few times a day, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And there are certain pieces to that that they pray. Well, the Jewish people pray a prayer that has 19. So be blessed about freedom in Christ. <laughs> and point number 14 and 15 are the following. This is the daily prayer is called the Amidah. And point number 14 is called the Birkat Yerushalayim. And this is what is prayed by the Jewish people even still today. Return in mercy to Jerusalem, your city, and dwell therein as you have promised. Speedily establish therein the throne of David, your servant, and rebuild it soon in our days as an everlasting edifice. Blessed are you, Lord, who rebuilds Jerusalem. Every single day, Jewish people all over the world are praying, God, will you bring back the throne of David? Because they're hoping for the Messiah to come. And so they're praying that the Messiah, who's the son of David, the anointed one, would come. Here's prayer 15. Berkrat David, this is what they pray three times a day. Speedily cause the descendant of David, your servant, to flourish and increase his power by your salvation. For we hope for your salvation all day. Blessed are you, O Lord, who causes the power of salvation to flourish. Isn't that amazing? So three times a day, the Jewish people that are praying the Amidah are praying that the descendant of David would come to Jerusalem and that salvation would come through David, your servant, a descendant of David. That's pretty cool. That's a pretty cool thing to pray, isn't it? One other thing from Judaism 101, belief in the eventual coming of the Mashiach is a basic and fundamental part of traditional Judaism. It is part of Maimonides, who was considered Judaism's greatest philosopher, 13 principles of faith, which are the minimum requirements of Jewish belief. So if you don't believe these 13 things, you're not Jewish. That's what he said. In the daily prayer, recited three times daily, we pray for, this is uh, what Jews pray, we pray for all the elements of the coming of the Messiah, including an end of wickedness, sin and heresy, reward to the righteous, rebuilding of Jerusalem, and the restoration of the line of King David. So, a people that theoretically believe just the Old Testament, when they get to the end of the book, they're saying, we need the son of David to come. We're going to pray three times a day that the son of David will come and establish the throne in Jerusalem. And in fact... You're not considered Jewish unless you believe that the Messiah, who was the son of David, will come. Isn't that interesting? People that solely stick with the Old Testament, that is the hope. So we ask ourselves the question, so what? So what if the Jewish people believe in the Messiah? So what if the Old Testament talks about a Davidic covenant and king? What, what does that have to do 
with Jesus and Christianity. I'm a Christian. This is Living Faith Christian Church. What are you trying to do here, huh? We're not doing circumcision next week. Is, is, are we okay? That was only women that laughed. That was interesting. <laughs> well, what that has to do with us and with Jesus can be answered by what N.T. Wright said about the Messiah. The Hebrew word Messiah, it literally means the anointed one. Hence, in theory, either a prophet, priest, or king. In Greek, which is the language of the New Testament, this translates as Christos. So we've, we've established this so far tonight. Christ, in early Christianity, was a title and only gradually became an alternative proper name for who? Jesus. In practice, Messiah, the term Messiah, we've just talked about the Jews believing and hoping for, is mostly restricted to the notion of the coming king who would be David's true heir through whom Yahweh would rescue Israel from pagan enemies. The reason why this relates to us is what the New Testament writers are going to be working to prove to their audience is that Jesus of Nazareth was and is that promised Messiah, a.k.a. the Christ, a.k.a. the Son of God, a.k.a. the Son of David, who would rule forever. The reason why this relates to us is because the point of the New Testament and the mission of the early church was to proclaim that Jesus of Nazareth was in fact the one who fulfilled the Davidic covenant, who is the son of David, who is the son of God. And if that's true, we believe he's the one who's going to rule forever. So that's why it relates to us today, because that hope of the Messiah ruling forever on David's throne has not yet been fulfilled. But if Jesus is in fact the Messiah, if he's qualified, if he's the son of God and the son of David, then we can have hope in him that he's going to finish the rest of the job. What did you think? This is a very important topic for all of us to come to grips with who want to understand the Bible and Jesus in particular. And these promises that God made David really do shape so much of later history that we find in the Bible. would love to hear your thoughts, comments, questions. Come on over to restitutio.org and find episode 429, part one of our Son of David class, and leave your feedback there. If you want to know more about Pastor Victor, he has appeared on this podcast a number of times previously, which I have a link to in the show notes to this episode. Also, he has a church website, livingfaithri.org, and a YouTube channel for that church at which he is the primary preacher. So you can check out his sermons there. And he also has another class called Kingdom Story on YouTube. So take a look at that if you need more Victor Gluckin, which I, I don't know about you, I feel like I always need more Victor Gluckin. So take a look at that. On our last episode, 428, Looking for the Historical Jesus, David wrote in saying, I have been musing and reading on these differences for a while. In social psychology terms, the right-wing evangelicals make their interpretation of Scripture as well as that Scripture itself as two of their sacred anchor points. As is said, this blinds and binds them on these issues. They cannot even for a moment question the validity of either point. 
while the liberals see these very things as oppression that we all need to be freed from, from which many people would agree to be true. Unfortunately, their rejection of the oppression also tends to reject a God whom they tend to perceive as proscriptive and thus oppressive, freedom being one of their sacred issues that in their case blinds them to God's words and binds them to freeing people from anything they see as oppressive. So what David is commenting on is our last episode in which I categorized scholarship about Jesus into two main groupings, the so-called evangelicals and the so-called liberals. The evangelicals are those who are committed to the authority and inspiration of Scripture, uh, but who also believe that Jesus has to be God, and that if you don't agree with that deity of Christ confession, that you are not, therefore, an evangelical. So they do biblical scholarship on Jesus. They take the Bible very seriously, but they need the Bible to confirm their creed that they've accepted, apart from whether or not the Bible agrees with it. Whereas the liberals do not accept the inspiration of Scripture, they treat it as any other historical document, and since part of their methodology requires them to dismiss all miracles, they have to slice and dice the Gospels to figure out what parts are actually historically true and what parts were just made up by the authors of the Gospels. But the liberals don't have the hang-up about dogma with regard to Jesus' identity and his deity. So the liberal Jesus tends to be much more of a human Jesus, a human Messiah, and they tend to do quite well on the message of Jesus because they don't have so much of the traditional baggage about heaven and hell and so on. But they still get the identity of Jesus wrong because they don't affirm the resurrection. And so here I am sitting in between these two mountains of scholarship, and that's what I was talking about last week, and then asking the question at the end of that episode, uh, so are we, those of us who see Jesus as Messiah but not God, and recognize the inspiration, the truthfulness, the validity of Scripture, are we evangelicals? And essentially what I argued is, no, we're not evangelicals. They don't want us to self-identify as evangelicals. It, it, it aggravates them when we do that. And at the same time, we're not liberals because we're not playing the game with their rules either. We actually do believe in miracles, and we actually do believe Scripture is from God. So uh, David's writing in talking about how each of these different positions, the evangelical and the liberal position, blinds and binds them on these different issues, which is a really fascinating and clever turn of phrase, David. I appreciate you bringing that in. And then David goes on to say, what about us? If we take Scripture and freedom from human creeds as our own sacred points, then we are prioritizing God and our relationship with him, accepting we do not need to be servants of God, but as a good master who has freed us from the oppression of sin and death, and then made us sons and heirs. One might ask if we're bound to that, then where is our blindness? Well, maybe we've broken the mold, and we've come to see this position because we've not been blinded by creeds and have eyes open to whatever God guides us to. I think humility is always the key to this as it's the willingness to accept we can be wrong and have much to learn from our Heavenly Father. So to this rather lengthy comment, I responded, 
Good points, David. In my experience with the liberal approach to biblical scholarship, especially when I was at Boston University, I found that they are at least as dogmatic and close-minded as evangelicals. For example, the liberal approach cannot, even if it passes all their criteria of authenticity, allow that miracles happened in history. They exclude the possibility as a matter of methodology. Neither can they allow for any kind of inspiration whatsoever because doing so deviates from quote-unquote good scholarship. The naturalism of Darwin is their creed, and anyone who admits miracles or God's role is not a real scholar. The whole enterprise seems hopelessly mired in Enlightenment modernism. And uh, so that's just a couple of thoughts on liberal. Now, just to be clear, I'm not talking about politically liberal Evangelicals can be liberal or conservative politically, and liberal scholars can be conservative or liberal. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the approach to Scripture. These are theological terms or really historiographical terms for how people are approaching Jesus' scholarship. So the question David asked, what is our blinder? Well, let me first lay out a position. I believe the best term to describe what it is, I think many of us, who listen to this podcast, and many of us who are part of the wider movement, of which Restitutio is just a small little wing, are what I call restorationists. And a restorationist is not someone who is interested in preserving tradition if that tradition is not found biblically and in church history. And what I mean by church history is early church history, not later church history, after things uh, develop and change. Not that all developments are bad either, but they they have to be held up to Scripture, especially the New Testament, to see if an idea contradicts there, then it's just a goner. It just can't stand. So a restorationist is someone who is trying to restore authentic Christianity, someone who is trying to get back to the faith of the apostles and live that out in our own day. Uh, which obviously also requires a lot of thinking as far as, like, what do we do with modern technology? What do we do with our democratic society? What do we do with the kinds of relationships that happen today and the kinds of interactions that are available that were not available in the first century? So there's, there's that's a whole second part of being a restorationist is figuring out how to apply the recovered principles of Scripture to our lives today. And that's really, I think— the best category. Now, what what is the blind spot of a restorationist? Well, a restorationist assumes that there's something to restore, assumes that there is an original that we can get back to. And we believe the original is the scriptures, that they are actually inspired by God, that they are true, that they are valid, reliable, historical, that they are what we can base our lives on and depend on for insight into what God actually thinks about this or that subject, about this or that behavior. And so, yeah, that's our blind spot. If, in fact, Scripture is is not from God, it's just a mere human invention, and that, that it's just made up, then restorationism is a hopeless endeavor. We're restoring something that was never true in the first place. <laughs> Uh, if to use a car analogy, if you're restoring something and you're you're working on it so hard and you're you're getting the rust off the vehicle and you're repairing it and then you repair it back to something and you discover that 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 whatever the original was you're restoring it to was itself an amalgamation of parts and that there was actually no original 
in the first place. Uh, that would be the blind spot of restorationism. But you know what? Everyone's got a blind spot, and it's good to know what it is. And what are we bound to? We're bound to constantly asking the question, is this original? Is this authentic? Does this go back to the apostles? If I thought this way and got in the time machine and hung out with Peter or James or Paul towards the end of the first century, would they agree with me on this? Uh, If I went back in a time machine into the early second century, would I fit in at church or would I be a total weirdo as far as my practices, as far as my beliefs? And if so, then I think something's got to change. So those are some thoughts on our approach to Christianity that many of us have, restorationism. If you're curious for more information about that, you can just go to restitutio.org, this word restitution, with no N, .org, and right on the homepage, I've got the Restorationist Manifesto, both the paper and the YouTube video, whichever you prefer. And of course, there's also a podcast audio. If you search in the feed, you'll find it there and uh, lay out these principles. I really think this is the winning approach to Christianity that is going to avoid the most number of errors while producing the most authentic form of Christianity that we can live out in our own time. So thanks everyone for tuning in, for listening. We'll catch you next week. If you'd like to support Restitutio, you can do that on our website. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.